Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. We're glad that you are here today. Um, that Q Commons event on Thursday, that should be a good event. I'm going to emcee it. Uh, Tim Keller and Voskamp, they'll be speaking as well as our own, very own John Collins. So uh, you can get tickets to that and show up. It'll be a good night. About 12 to 13 years ago, um, a man by the name of Josh Butler came to Imago. You know him as Pastor Josh Butler. And Josh at that time was finishing school. And, um, and, and he worked with our arts, he wrote songs, he uh, had this great theological mind, and, uh, and yet he really had a passion for mission and the culture. And I remember sitting with Jeff, and we were thinking about Josh, as he served so many hours for nothing, and, I, and we would always just think, you know, whatever he has, I'd like a pint of that. Um, he's just such a brilliant guy. And over the years, Josh has blessed this community, continued to grow, and has become a pastor on staff. A few years ago, we made a decision for our global kind of focus as elders to go, what if we, what if we really honed in on unreached people? There's still thousands of groups of people who have never heard about Jesus, never heard the gospel. And so a lot of those groups were in Vietnam, or several, and we said we should go to Vietnam, and that should be our global focus. So Josh Butler got on a plane and went to Vietnam, like just by himself, and he went to find the underground church. Like, can you imagine if I gave you a ticket and said, hey, I'll see you in a couple weeks? And yet he found them, you know, just Josh Butler with his big hair, Walking around Vietnam, hey, I think he had a Jesus Loves Me shirt on. I don't know what was going on. But uh, they're still persecuting Christians there. Finds the underground church, realizes we should go to Cambodia because they're connected to Vietnam. And those Christians are the ones that would actually go into Vietnam and plant. Brilliant. And uh, because of him, we've been working in Cambodia and Vietnam for several years. And so Josh, one of his gifts is to take all three of these things and bring them together. An artistic kind of passion, a heart for mission, and this great theological mind. And today, uh, it's my privilege to announce the release of his first uh, book, and there will be many to come, and it's called The Skeletons in God's Closet. And what he does with this book is so strategic in that he takes these really difficult topics, hell, judgment, holy war, things that most people, like if you're a follower of Jesus, you just pretend they're not in the Bible. So when your non-Christian friends are like, dude, what about, you're like, never heard of it. Uh, It's bad though. That's tough. Um, He takes them head on. And so for those of you here who aren't a Christ follower and you have these issues, or even those of you that are here and you say, I followed Christ for years, but there's still this kind of inkling in your heart that behind this really nice Jesus is a God I don't like. 
which is nothing could be further from the truth. Josh helps you discover that. And so one of the ways that we want to help roll out the book and help you all see it as a resource is we, you should have gotten a card like this. And it's a card that is inviting you to a uh, study through the book uh, on Thursday, starting October 16th. And it's a study that'll help you and equip you with some of those big questions, like, is God really good? It's also an opportunity for you to bring friends to that who might have questions or at least equip you to have those conversations. So what I want you to do is I want you to buy the book. I want you to support Josh. We really do believe that God has taken this man and is going to use his voice way beyond Imago. If you want a free copy of the book on this card, there's ways you can score a free copy. Uh, like wash Josh's car, uh, take him dinner. No. Uh, write a review, Facebook it, blog it, do whatever you can for it and help him out, help him get the word out. But it is truly a great resource for us and a privilege for us to have someone like Josh on staff. So let's show some love for Josh Butler. I don't know where he is. He's probably working on his next book. So, All right, we're in the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Mark. And as we've been walking through the story of God for the last several months... We are now in the gospel. So I hope you've been reading along. If you haven't started, just jump in right now, start reading Mark. And between now and the end of the year, we'll read through the New Testament together. But Mark paints a picture of Jesus that answers one of the questions I think all of us have, which is what is Jesus like? And he shows him as this beautiful son of man who is a servant of all. Now, a lot of you know, you've, you've been around church and the Bible and things like that long enough that we're supposed to serve people, we're supposed to be humble. A, a lot of those things, when we hear those, they come off very, I, I always feel guilty, like, I know I should do that, and I'm not very good at it, so I'll work on it. It really is a challenge in a day of social media to, to be humble. Like many of us believe we should tweet and do Instagrams on everything we do. A lot of things which I don't care that you do. And you probably don't care that I do. And and I try to picture like, it's very strategic I think that Jesus showed up when he did prior to the technological revolution. Because if he was here today, can you imagine what the disciples would do with all their social media? Like a picture of a sack lunch. And just like about to, about to get our grub on, hashtag feeding of the 5,000, right? <laughs> a picture of Peter all soaking wet with Jesus, and he's like, walked on water with this guy today, you know? I mean, it could go on and on. And then all the, all those sort of fishing tweets, like, Judas is driving me crazy. You know, I, I hate him. I think he stole my money. Uh, we, we would have this, this, this view into a world that, that we really shouldn't have. And, and, and if Jesus was here, like what, what would he do with those things? Well, thankfully we don't have to worry about it. And you're tweeting enough for him as it is. He's grateful for it too. He needs more followers. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> 
That was lame. That was totally lame. But you can say it. I appreciate that. What makes Christ really so beautiful is that he has this complete uh, selfless focus that's not on himself but on others. And there's something about that when you see it, when you experience it, it actually does change you. It actually attracts you to who Christ is. So that serving other people, for instance, it doesn't, make, it doesn't come out of guilt or duty, but it comes from loving Christ. And, and Mark's gospel really paints a picture for us to see how that works. So turn with me to chapter 10, and we'll get rolling. Now Mark's gospel is written in this time of crisis. Uh, he's writing it to, to believers in Rome. Shortly after Nero had a lot of Christians killed, sort of blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. So Peter, who was a primary disciple of, discipler of John Mark, he was crucified. And so what you really have in the Gospel of Mark is Peter's words being told through the eyes of John Mark uh, after Peter was martyred by Nero. Now John Mark... You often think, like, if I was a gospel writer, I'd probably have my life pretty together, right? Like, we said, hey, I wrote a book. What book did you write? The Gospel of Mark. That's, that's amazing. That's done really well. Um, people are still reading it, buying it. But, but you get this picture of him. He puts himself in the gospel in this little cameo right after Jesus is arrested It says in verse 51 of chapter 14, it says, A young man wearing nothing but linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized Jesus, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So that's his cameo. Not not impressive, but there he is. He's the one nude guy in the gospel. One of the few naked men in the gospels. Uh, Peter called him his son. And at the end of his life, Paul calls John Mark to come and help him. But John Mark begins with really a failed sort of ministry. Paul and Barnabas go on a mission. They go to take the gospel to these regions beyond uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And as they get out there, John Mark does something and Paul's like, fires him. Now imagine coming home from a mission trip and go, hey, how'd it go? Like, did you get your t-shirt? Like... I saved Athens or something, whatever you do. It's like, no, I got canned. By who? Some guy named Paul. The Apostle Paul? Like that? That's not good. That doesn't look good on your resume. And yet at the end, Jesus chooses him. And Peter calls him a son. And he actually is the one that, that paints this picture of Christ. And he shows that Jesus is the one who shows up in the midst of crisis. And as he shows up in the midst of crisis, he speaks and he acts and he serves those who have been persecuted by the, by the uh, nation. So look with me at chapter 10, verse 32. And here's what I want us to do to start to see this picture of the servant that Mark gives us. It says, they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So in in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is facing Jerusalem and he's going there in his mission and he knows that he's going to die. And you hear these two words. One is those who followed him were astonished and those who followed uh, more were afraid. Now they're astonished because he's walking into to a trap. He knows, everyone knows that people want to kill Jesus and yet he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. So they're sort of shocked by that. Secondly, those who are closest to him, the 12, they're afraid because they're like, if he goes, we go. And, and so it's kind of a frightening thing. But in their mind, they must think that Jesus is going to enact some kind of powerful revolution right now. Like he's going to overthrow something. Uh, their, their idea of power and authority and glory and all those things were very much wrapped up in their culture. So they're in awe or astonished, and they're also afraid because they're not sure what Jesus is going to do. We get a little bit of a hint about this in the next verse, chapter uh, 35. It says, Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, asked Jesus. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So they bring this request, and it's a, a, quest, a request essentially for, for worldly status. Like their understanding came from their culture, came from their world. And though they've been with Jesus for like three, three and a half years, they're still not quite connecting the dots on what the heartbeat of this king and kingdom is really all about. And so what they want is they say, I want one of us to sit on our, your right, one of us to sit on your left. Those are the positions of power closest to the king. They would have had in mind those who sat next to Caesar. Uh, you might have in mind vice president or whatever it would be. But what they missed was that that Jesus was not talking about going to the top. He was talking about going to the bottom. And that's where you find your glory. Now, it was normally these three people at the inner circle of Jesus. It was these two, James and John, but then there was Peter there too. But they kind of rubbed Peter out. They're like, push Peter away and you and I will get on on seat one and seat two. Which Peter, you know, reflecting this back to Mark, was probably a little irritated by that. What's really bad in Luke's gospel is they bring their mom with them. Like, can you imagine that? Like, here, uh, Jesus, my mom has a question for you. Go ahead. And the whole time, she's like, I mean, they're really good. They're super smart. And he's just looking at them like, really? This is what they say? Anyways, you brought your mom to the interview. That's bad. How many of us, though, do believe that coming to Jesus will make us great? I mean, we don't come right out and say it, 
But an inner motivation for following Jesus is, I follow Jesus because I get, get my life together, or I can become somebody, or he'll use me in some powerful way, or he'll fix my life, which is all broken. And many of us have our own misintentions when it comes to Jesus. And at the core of it is we want to use Jesus. We want to take his authority, his power, his spirit, whatever it is that he's got going for himself, and we want to get up next to it for ourselves. Not necessarily in a humble way, but perhaps in a manipulative way, a controlling way, a way where Jesus gets reduced to just be a means to an end. They completely miss the point of why they're going to Jerusalem, of how this king uses his power of what true glory really means in the eyes of the Father. Like they just miss it. So then Jesus turns the tables on them and invites them into a life of suffering and not privilege. Look at verse um, 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These are places belonging to those for whom they have been prepared. So he turns the tables on them and he asks them not Can you rule well? Do you have the kind of authority that's going to take to run a kingdom like mine? He says, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized by? Now, what is he talking about? Well, he just told us. I'm going to suffer. The Son of Man will be mocked, handed over to Gentiles, spit on, flogged, and killed. He's painting a picture of a king who is giving his life for people. He says, can you drink the cup I drink? And they say, oh, sure, we can. Now, many of them said this. We know at the end of the gospel that if he re- they really believed that, they wouldn't have fled when he was arrested. Suffering is a bad advertisement campaign. Like, nobody wants to sell a product that says, this will make your life hard. Like, okay, good. I won't buy it? Like, (laughs) duh. Suffering, the path of suffering, it's something that we want to mask, or we want to use Jesus to, to basically get us out of suffering. But Yet suffering's all over the place. We see it in our world, our systems, our society, our relationships, our bodies. We see it all over the place. And Jesus says, I'm not creating a kingdom that's going to walk around suffering. But I'm going to go through suffering. And going through suffering, I will conquer the grave and bring it to new life. Can you drink the cup? The way to move to the top is to go to the bottom. What happens when he does this? He's removing 
all these promises for kind of personal glory as their motivation. Like, what's the motivation? Why would I suffer? Why would I serve? Why would I do any of this if at the end there isn't a payday? There isn't some benefit to me. What is left that, would, that could possibly motivate me to do this, to sign up for this? And the only thing that can be left is the same motivation with which Jesus was motivated by, and that's love. That Jesus was captured in his affections, in his heart, with a real, authentic love for us, for humanity. With a deep affection for the Father. And to see this creation that was broken and suffering, to see it brought back to a place of belonging and union and new creation with the Father, Son, and Spirit, he loved that. He loved the Father and he loved his creation and he loved you. Still does. Surprising as it may be, he still does. And that is a beautiful king. I mean, that is the kind of king that we are completely shocked by because we live in a culture that's radically different. And Jesus goes on to talk about this in the next verse. Look at 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I love that, right? Because it's so real. Like we have this picture of the disciples that they were all walking around carrying large books, leather bound books, and halos and tunics of white. They were total, they were chaos. They, they couldn't have been different from each other, zealots and peacemakers and all these kind of people. And they get word that James and John tried to snake the two positions of, at the top. And they're ticked. I'm sure they're like, we should thump them. We should be, I mean, when Jesus, what Jesus does next is he says he calls them together. Why is he calling them together? Because they're about to kill two people. Like they're right, they're all upset. They're arguing, they're yelling. How could, you brought your mom, you, right? It, it just keeps going. And Jesus is like, hold on, everybody, come sit, come sit. Listen, let me tell you a story. Um, he, he, he's getting them in front of him and he says, you know, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercised authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus creates his kingdom very, very differently than what they're used to. Surprisingly different than what we're all accustomed to, right? Like you would assume that if he was going to establish his reign, he'd get everybody in the house and start commanding orders and do this and do that, but he doesn't. He creates a counterculture kingdom that those who have the most authority would not lord it over 
those underneath them. And hierarchy within cultures is the way it is, it's the way it's always been. And all of us are sort of uh, weaned early on to want to be at the top of the food chain. The higher up you get, the less you have to serve, the less you have to report to somebody. So what do you want? You want to keep moving up the corporate ladder. You want to keep moving up society or status or popularity. You don't want to be last. Nobody wants to be last. You learn this as a kid in third grade when they're picking teams for basketball. You learn this because you're short and you're squatty and you can't make a shot. You learn this because you're me and I can't play basketball, right? And you're always the last one picked, and you're like, oh gosh, here it comes again. It's me, and it's a little girl, but she's got a great free throw, so I'm out. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna... But all you want is to be picked first. Like, you want status, you want popularity, you want hierarchy, and Jesus comes and he flips it all on its head and says, when you're given authority... And when you're given status, when you're given popularity, whatever that thing is, you do not use it to lord over anybody. You don't hold it. We, not so with you, we don't hold this over anybody's head. It's a very different culture. If you want to be first, then you need to become last. It's also a counterculture of glory, right? He says, if you want to be great, you become a servant of all. That what seems glorious to us is that we would be the ones that are being served. We're the ones who are being taken care of, waited on, doted on, at people asking, what can I do for you? That seems like glory, kind of a worldly sense of it. I mean, imagine having nannies and butlers and yada, yada, yada. That would be pretty nice. But he flips it on its head and he says, actually, the glory in this kingdom is that you would be the one who serves. That the glory in this kingdom is that you would take your privilege and your power, whatever it is that you have, and you would use it to serve someone else. You would use it to actually be a slave to someone else. That is a counterculture sense of glory that I would be the slave, not the one in power. It's also a counterculture power because privilege, like all of us, none of us assume that we have lots of privilege or power for that matter. But the truth is, we live in one of the wealthiest countries of the world, if not the. We all are in the highest educated, like we live really well compared to most of the world. And you do have lots that Jesus has given you. You have been privileged. Whether that's your resources or your time or some of you are leaders in the community, or even in a classroom, like all of us, no matter the breadth of that position, it is an opportunity to serve other people. That's what Jesus says about his kingdom, is a counterculture power. 
Like that is what's powerful. When you give up your rights to bend down and bless and serve in the Father's eyes, that is beautiful. And we know that because that's what his son did. And Jesus always did what the Father told him to do. That is the glory of God. Not that he's big and all-powerful and all those things. Yeah, those are great. But he's all those things and what did he do with them? He took on flesh and he came down and he served you. And he served me. That is a counterculture power. Because, and none of these things make sense if we don't have a counterculture king, right? That the king himself is the one that came not to be served, who could command angels, who could command creation. This is the one who spoke creation into place and he enters the world not on a throng of giant kind of worshipers, but as a baby in the womb of an unwed teenage mom. He takes on our flesh and he came quietly so as not to draw attention. There are so many times in the Gospels where he performs a miracle and the person says, you're the Messiah. And he's like, shh, don't tell anyone. You're like, what? I was about to Instagram it. No? Um, right? And, and when he does that, what is he doing? He's going, I'm, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve. To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What, what he does is he says he's giving not just like, hey, I got a couple hours. It's not like him and the father. Like, what are we going to do about the universe? It's broken. It's fallen. Rick's life's a mess. Well, I got three hours on Thursday. I could give that. No, he gives everything. He gives his life. He leaves glory. He takes on frail humanity. He gives his life. And he gives it as a ransom. Now the word ransom assumes some things. It assumes that we don't belong to God or ourselves, that we aren't free. What we don't realize is that this kind of being a slave to all is, um, seems sort of unattractive. But the truth is we are enslaved to all kinds of things. We're enslaved to the culture's view of power and position and authority. We are enslaved to greed and to lust. We're enslaved to addiction and brokenness and death. We're enslaved to all kinds of things. And this king comes giving his life as the payment to ransom you out of that place of enslavement and to set you free. That is a beautiful king. I mean, that is a good king who is so generous with all of his wealth, with all of his power, with all that this God King is, he uses it to serve. And what is the greatest need that we had that he served? It was to set us free and ransom us by giving the payment of his own life. That is a generous, generous God. So Mark paints this picture of a Jesus who is humble 
and gracious and a loving king, a king who stoops down to serve us in this deepest need, to suffer in our place, to purchase us back to the Father through this exchange of his glorious life for ours. And it is baffling how beautiful that is. I mean, think about it. I think of Van's poem. And I am not the waiter running around you know, upset that people are taking advantage of me. I'm the guy that's complaining that, God, my life is to this and not enough that, and you didn't do this, and da-da-da-da. We are all really bad customers. Just pain-in-the-butt customers, if you ask me. Like, if I'm the king, I'm like, eh, we don't serve your kind here. But what does he do with these ornery customers of life that are always blaming and competing and telling God why he messed things up and take my life back and bring it back when it's all right. He comes and he serves you. He ransoms you. He sets you free. I hope that that captures you because the bad part is to start with Jesus as a model, right? Jesus is the model. He served this way, so should you. You can't go there. You cannot start there. You have to start with worship or else you'll never get to an authentic kind of service. You'll just end up an angry waiter for Jesus, right? But if you start with worship and you're captured by the revolution of this upside-down kingdom, you're captured by the beauty of who Christ is as your suffering servant, then you are invited to join him in loving and serving others in the face of Christ. The more authority that you have been given, the more opportunity you have to serve others. Like, it's just true so, so whatever that little bit of privilege, that little bit of authority, that little bit of influence, whatever that thing is, God gave it to you. And in his kingdom, he endowed you with that so that you can serve other people in the same way he served you. And in doing it, it's not a chore. Like it, it's not, it can't be a chore because we do it unto Jesus. Like we serve the one who first served us. And we serve Christ in the face of the stranger and in the neighbor and in the child and in, in the employee, in the employer, in the co-student, in the classroom. Wherever you have been placed, you have been placed there to reflect and display this beautiful upside-down kingdom which screams freedom to a world enslaved by another king. All of us are invited into this new way of being. And, and the thing about it is there is nothing and no one that is too insignificant for us to serve. Nothing. Because Christ, like he's above everything and he comes down, he served you. He served me. 
So as a family, like we come here all the time, and you often hear, hey, we need help with kids' ministry. And, and what the wrong framing of that is we, being the leaders, need help with kids who are some of yours, and it's a ministry, which is a program, so check in, check out. The, the real kind of ask is we as a family have these young lives that Jesus was really stoked about, and you are invited to come and serve Jesus in the face of that child. Every week when you walk in here, right, you grab coffee. Um, Somebody made that, and it wasn't me. Jeannie and I are just at home all weekend making coffee for you. Like, it's not me. And the only way that you would really appreciate it is if it wasn't there, right? And you'd be like, where's my coffee? And most of you would go home. Because, you, you know, we're, we're going to go this far for Jesus, but there wasn't any coffee, so we became Buddhist. Um, they got great coffee. Uh, but, but, but the point is somebody, many people actually, show up here early in the morning to make coffee so that you can have like a warm cup of coffee just to bless you. That's servanthood. You're never going to see them. You don't know who they are, but you are not below them, right? They're not like, well, those people, I'm way, I'm way too important to make them coffee. No, they, they serve and they bless. You come in every week and the sound techs are up in that booth. And the only time that you even think about them is when there's feedback in a mic. And you're like, ah, what are those dummies up there? Like, and, and we get away. They stand before this giant board of blanking lights and like air traffic controllers try to run this thing. And they just do it out of service, right? And there are so many places you could point to. But the, the thing is, it is a we conversation that we are called to serve each other in the face of Christ. And there's nothing too great or too small, or so insignificant, or no one so insignificant that you should not serve. And the only way that this doesn't become a guilt trip, and the only way that I can share it honestly without feeling like I'm making an ask or twisting an arm, is because it's not a chore, it's not a task, if we see Jesus first. Otherwise, it becomes just that guilt-duty thing. There was a guy, years ago, I hear the story of uh, when they started started the Salvation Army. And um, there was somebody that was coming from England who was kind of a big deal. Kind of arrogant, not very humble, bishop so-and-so. And the guy brings him into American headquarters for this uh, Salvation Army. And his first task, he goes, here's what I need you to do. I need you to polish... Uh, boots. Make sure the boots are polished. And the guy's obviously like, do you know who I am? Did you see my degree? That's what... So he's there and he's polishing boots and he's always complaining about it. And then he says, one day I have this vision. I have this vision of Jesus in John 13. Wrapped in a towel, washing fishermen's feet. And if you've ever seen middle-aged man feet, Right? They're not good. They're like, and, and particularly those who pre-shoe feet. Like, this is sandals at best. There's no Nikes going on. 
And so they're bunions and cracked and dirty, and they got lots of the green toenails, you know, those ones? No, really? Sure, people, come on. Half of you have them. And Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is holding these feet, and he's washing them for the disciples. And he says, hey, as I have done to you, you should do this for each other. And the guy just says, I'll polish the boots, Lord. I'll polish the boots. Right? When it's a duty and a chore, all you can think of is how much better you are than the task. Ah, but when it's love, when it's worship, then you see the beauty of Jesus. When you see the beauty of Jesus, you're free. You're free to give your life away. So this morning I invite you to this table. A table of bread and wine, but it's the body and blood of Christ. It is the the payment that your suffering servant king made to set you free and bring you to the Father and invite you to join him in this revolution of his kingdom where the people of God would love, serve, and suffer for a humanity as though they were Christ themselves. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you today confessing, God, that we are just, um, we are picky customers with lots of complaints. We are irritated waiters that don't have a whole lot of love. And today, through the gospel that you have given us, in Mark, we get to see just how beautiful and generous you are. You have been so kind and so patient, so sacrificial to those of us that are so undeserving. And your love so great that you would suffer be spit upon, mocked, flogged, killed to set us free because you loved us and because you loved the Father. God, capture our hearts through the Holy Spirit today to see Jesus. And may we say with this man, we'll polish the boots, Lord. We'll polish the boots. We pray this in the name of our suffering servant king, Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.